electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Eamon Jabbers in tonight for Brian Sullivan right now on Last Call, hitting the brakes on the Biden administration's EV push. Congress prepares a big vote coming up tomorrow. Now, the lawmaker who's leading that charge is going to join us right here. And speaking of EVs, it's the Cybertruck review generating so much buzz, even Elon Musk is sounding off about it. The man who wrote it is going to be here. Boom goes the Bitcoin prices on a rocket ride yet again this hour. But this frenzy isn't like the last one. We'll tell you why. A game-changing plan out of CVS for drug prices. If it sounds familiar, well, you're not wrong. We'll show you what it means for your money. And the Tennessee estate so over the top, you have to see it to believe it. CNBC's wealth expert Robert Frank is going to take us there. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. And good evening. We'll get to all those stories shortly. But first up, a years-long land dispute is ramping up in South America with big implications for energy markets and for the United States. It's a story that's still largely flying under the radar, but it shouldn't be. The territory in question is known as Guyana Esqueba or Esquebo. It's a sparsely populated jungle-covered terrain that makes up roughly two-thirds of the country of Guyana. The country is now a hot energy frontier following a series of offshore oil discoveries led by ExxonMobil. The disputed area is considered part of Guyana by the international community, but Venezuela argues the land was stolen when the borders were drawn back in 1899, and this past Sunday, Venezuelans approved a referendum led by President Nicolas Maduro to claim sovereignty of the oil-rich region. It's unclear how many people exactly took part in that vote or what the terms of the vote were, but Brazil is heightening its military presence now along its northern border as tensions build between the two nations, and U.S. Defense Department officials are expected to visit Guyana in the upcoming days. So how big of a risk to energy security is this takeover threat, and at what point would the U.S. decide it has to intervene? With us tonight for more is retired four-star general and NBC News military analyst Barry McCaffrey. He's spent a lot of time in the region. Uh, General, thank you for joining Last Call tonight. First of all, I mean, I think a lot of Americans are not familiar with this, and I can tell you that official Washington here inside the Beltway, where I am, certainly not focused on this situation. What do you think is at stake here uh, in South America tonight? Well, it's always tempting to dismiss this kind of concern as mildly comical. Venezuela, of course, is a basket case. A quarter of the population, uh, 8 million plus people, has walked out of the country. Just an incredible economic collapse. Venezuelan military is uh, in a pathetic state. Uh, So it's all about the oil. Since 2015 discovery by ExxonMobil, as you've uh, noted, uh, there's enormous wealth there, and Guyana has been in the last three years. His their standard of living has skyrocketed uh, with this newfound source of wealth. 
Uh, hard to say what's going to happen. Brazil does not want a war to happen. They've moved a cavalry regiment up with armored cars to block the only road that goes from Venezuela to Guyana. Uh, the Guyanas do have seven, 8,000 active and reserve troops. They have no Navy. They have a tiny Coast Guard. Uh, it's unlikely it'll come to warfare. But Brazilian intelligence is reporting that Venezuelans are uh, taking measures to actually invade, and Maduro has been spouting off uh, in a very uh, bellicose manner. So worth uh, awareness, two U.S. delegations are headed to Suriname uh, to uh, buttress deterrence. Let's talk about diplomacy before we talk about warfare, right? That's where everyone hopes this goes. Uh, what are the U.S. options here in terms of diplomacy? I mean, can we buck up the Guyanese government enough to push back on this effort by Venezuela? Uh, is there something that we can offer Venezuela to sort of keep this from spiraling out of control? What's the U.S. play here? Well, of course, Venezuela, the Biden administration just recently loosened economic restrictions on Venezuela. Uh, I think the international diplomacy of it is quite clear. Since 1899, this is part of Guyana. Uh, the dispute is in front of the UN uh, International Court. Uh, so in theory, uh, the Organization of American States, the OAS, uh, will support Guyana in their view that this is their territory until a court rules uh, otherwise. Uh, but again, Maduro is desperate. And uh, some of his statements, you know, how they have underestimated uh, we, the Venezuelans, they've underestimated me. Hopefully he has not painted himself into a corner. Uh, I mean, this is the ultimate strongman's tactic, right? I mean, you gin up uh, some external conflict to rally the support at home. This is the ultimate, you know, external enemy trick, you know, playbook run by dictators for generations. Yeah, no question. Uh, by the way, Guyana's not in very good shape either, notwithstanding the last three years of economic development. Uh, they've had a huge challenge internally in crime and corruption, and uh, police has been uh, a third-rate institution. Uh, but we ought to pay attention to it. I think deterrence yeah. is going to be possible using international diplomacy, principally not the United Nations, I would think, but the Organization of American States. This is very, um, very deep. Want a war. This is very, very deep jungle territory. If it comes to warfare, everyone hopes it doesn't. If it does come to warfare, given the lay of the land there uh, and the two countries involved, who has the upper hand? Well, in theory, it would be Venezuela, except I don't think they can get there except by sea. And so the U.S. or the OAS international forces would be relatively easy to block Venezuela from landing forces in this jungle-covered, sparsely populated, uh, but two-thirds of Guyana is at stake. So I think the Biden administration will make every effort to never employ U.S. military power in yeah. the region. Uh, but Especially, oh, yeah. I think, you know, you've got Ukraine going on, which is an enormous military deadlift in terms of supply and logistics for the United States. We've got now the Middle East, uh, you know, on fire. Uh, the Biden administration certainly is not going to want another situation on its back doorstep. 
Yeah, no question. I, th- I, th- I think the, the lead will be Secretary Blinken. General McCaffrey, uh, uh, thank, you for, thank you for being here. Thanks for your analysis. Appreciate having your expert voice on this evening. And a quick programming note. On Thursday morning, ExxonMobil chairman and CEO Darren Woods joins Squawk on the Street for an exclusive interview. Don't miss that sit-down. Tune in Thursday at 9 Eastern for that one. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow dropping nearly 80 points, S&P dipping into the red slightly, and the Nasdaq NASDAQ jumping 44 points into positive territory. One big mover today, Apple shares jumping more than 2%, closing with a market cap above $3 trillion for the first time since August. And on to the studs and duds, the biggest winner of the day was Market Access Holdings gaining 5.3%. It's a fixed income electronic trading platform and is seeing record volume. And for the biggest loser, that's Charter Communications down 8.7%. Its CFO warns the company may see a drop in broadband subscribers for the fourth quarter. And up next, throwing a wrench into President Biden's EV push. A big vote coming tomorrow in Congress. The lawmaker who is leading the charge on that will join us. Plus, some shocking comments from the NCAA president around paying college athletes with actual money. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. And it's time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, home builder Toll Brothers reporting a beat on earnings after the bell. But it's the full year outlook and guidance fueling a boost to the stock after hours. Toll Brothers says lower inflation and mortgage rates could lead to higher demand for new homes moving forward. It expects new home deliveries to grow in the new year. Next up, a rough after hours session for a host of cloud stocks. Shares of Box, MongoDB, and Asana all seeing major declines after reporting results. While Box was the only one that missed earnings expectations, outlook concerns and macroeconomic headwinds are the major drag on shares after hours. Among other points, Box's CEO tried to sound a more optimistic note, saying investments in AI tech will be a major driver for business moving forward. And finally, a big declaration in the world of college sports. NCAA President Charlie Baker writing a letter to more than 350 Division I schools. He's asking to create a new tier of sports that would require at least half of athletes to get paid by their colleges. Under the new tier, schools would pay players at least $30,000 a year through a trust fund, 
Baker points out, the disparity between wealthier schools and other institutions is a reason for these new requirements. The proposal would also require schools to offer name and image licensing deals with their athletes. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, a major House vote is set for tomorrow. It's called the Choice in Automobile Retail Sales, or CARS Act. See what they did there? It had blocked the Biden administration from enforcing its proposal that would impose emissions limits. In turn, those limits would require electric vehicles to make up at least two-thirds of all automobile sales by the year 2032. The bill would also prohibit regulations that mandate using a certain type of vehicle engine. So joining me now, Michigan Congressman and a chief sponsor of the CARS Act, Tim Wahlberg. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. What do you hope to accomplish with this? Well, we hope to accomplish uh, something for the consumer that allows them to have the freedom and opportunity to choose what they drive, how they drive it, when they drive it, something that is uh, attainable for them, something that's affordable, uh, something that's realistic. So uh, this is what we're doing, pushing back on anything that would say you have to drive the type of car we expect you to drive. And while some of my Democrat colleagues will say there is no mandate, yet when you have the regulation that is being proposed by EPA for 2027, by 2032, as you've said, in order to meet the tailpipe emission standards, it's going to have to be electric vehicles. And right now, that's not working. Why do you say that? Well, I say, number one, uh, it, it's not affordable. In Michigan, the average owner of a EV vehicle at this time uh, makes $100,000 household income. That's 31% of the population. Secondly, it doesn't meet the needs for distance and travel. Uh, just going across my district that goes from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan, I would have to charge up at least once during that time period in order to carry on my functions as a member of Congress. Think of isn't, someone who isn't is part working of, in, If I could interrupt you, Congressman, just for one second. Isn't sure. part of what the Biden administration is trying to accomplish here with these regulations, uh, pushing demand toward EVs so that you do bring down those EV costs that you're talking about and extend the range that, that you're concerned about in your district? Well, if that's the case, but we're not finding the auto industry saying that they're capable of doing that. If they were, then you also have to have the, the structure in place that they can charge the vehicles. We don't have that. We have an example of our former governor in Michigan, the energy secretary now, heading down on a trip to prove how EVs work. And ultimately, she had to have her staff in a fossil fuel file vehicle block a charging station from a family with a baby in the car in order to have the ability to charge her vehicle. We had the uh, chairman of a Ford Motor Company honestly state that as he tried to show the capabilities of an EV, uh, taking a trip across the country, the West Coast, he couldn't make it successfully. He what about the pollution the argument, newspapers. right, Congressman? I mean, nobody likes pollution, right? These cars yeah. are cleaner, right? I mean, that's also the They're, big driver of what the Biden administration is trying to do, is clean air for all the communities across the country. How do you answer that one? Well, they're cleaner as long as we uh, push that cleanliness to China, because China is the one that's going to have to mine our, our resources. For one battery, it takes 100 pounds of ore. That ore, in order to have a 100 pounds, requires 500 pounds to be, to be mined. That's for one battery. Think of what that means as far as smoke out the, uh, the stacks of, of uh, mining vehicles, 
that are, uh, uh, that are the only thing capable of bringing that ore to, out of the ground, then crushing it, making it into a battery, and, and then putting it on the road. So all of the resultant factors, in fact, says it would potentially be more costly to the, to the owner of the vehicle uh, to have a charging uh, vehicle like an EV, plus yep. all of the pollution that's produced from the production of the batteries themselves. It is the great automotive debate of our era. Congressman, uh, good luck to you on the floor tomorrow. We'll see where this goes. Congressman Tim Wahlberg, appreciate your time tonight. Also on Capitol Hill tomorrow, the Senate Banking Committee is set to hear from major bank CEOs on potential industry regulations. CNBC's Emily Wilkins got a sneak peek and joins us now on What to Expect. Hey there, Emily. Hey, Amen. Well, yeah, get ready for a lot of debate and discussion tomorrow. A lot of it will be around a proposed increase in bank capital requirements. Several bank CEOs are planning to mention it in their opening remarks, and senators are planning to ask about it, too. CEOs from eight banks are going to be at this hearing, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs. Uh, they'll be present for what has become now an annual oversight hearing. And many Republicans, like South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds, have opposed these new capital standards, they see this hearing as a chance to make their case about why they shouldn't be put in place by asking CEOs about the results of the higher capital. What do they believe the impact is going to be uh, on, on interest rates, uh, credit card rates, um, the availability of credit? And, and uh, you know, it really comes back down to what is the impact on the household that is really just trying to make ends meet? Banking CEOs are planning to portray the higher capital standards as ultimately harming the larger economy, according to prepared testimony. Banking regulators won't be at the hearing, but they are ultimately the ones that both groups are trying to convince to change the proposed rule before it is finalized. Democratic senators plan to ask CEO about several other topics, including how they are addressing climate change, de-risking their energy portfolios, and whether they're making use of a new instant payment system from the Federal Reserve. The hearing is going to begin at 9.30 a.m. tomorrow and is expected to run into the early afternoon. And Eamon, we will be there to cover it all. I bet you will, Emily. You mentioned all those other uh, issues at the end of your hit there. And I think that's one of the big wild cards of this. And it's why it's worth paying attention to, because everybody's got their prepared uh, you know, statement that they want to make. They're going to le- read, read it into the record. The congressmen all have their prepared things. But the big wild card is the other extraneous issues. You know, I think from the right, they're going to try to hit some of these banking executives with charges of wokeism and woke investment. You know, from the left, they're going to be very critical of the effect of banking uh, industry practices on uh, middle class and poorer families. What are the wild card issues that you think might come up here that, that these banking CEOs ought to be prepping for tonight in their hotel rooms here in D.C.? I mean, one thing that I'm definitely going to be listening for is anything to do with credit card, credit card fees. That's become a major issue for a number of these banks. Obviously, there are lawmakers uh, trying to move regulation that would basically have banks rather than retail pay for some of those fees that happens every time you swipe your credit card. Eamon, I think you're also uh, right about diversity. Uh, That's certainly a topic that I know a lot of Republicans um, are kind of eager to be looking for when they're talking with these major corporations. And then simply consumer protection. 
protections? What are these banks doing uh, to make sure that the folks who are using them uh, are being well taken care of and are, are treating them fairly? So I think there's a lot of things that could be discussed. Uh, senators are going to have to be very judicious with their time, though. I think each of them only get five minutes to ask questions. Uh, so it will uh, definitely be interesting to see exactly what it's, they prioritize when tomorrow it's comes. Always Always such a challenge for the senators to decide if they want to actually ask questions or if they want to use those five minutes to make their own speech. But in either case, Emily, we will be watching. Thank you for that. And coming up here, a landmark overhaul for prescription drug pricing. You might have Mark Cuban to thank for that one. We'll show you what it means for your money. Plus, the Cybertruck review getting so much attention, Elon Musk is now chiming in. The man who wrote it joins us. That's coming up. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Eamon Javers in for Brian Sullivan tonight. CVS is overhauling how it prices prescription drugs. They'll do it with a new pharmacy reimbursement model that goes into effect in 2025. The plan will use a, what they're calling, transparent formula to determine medication costs and corresponding reimbursement. CVS Health CEO Karen Lynch was on CNBC today expressing her excitement about the change. We'll have that transparent pricing at the pharmacy counter and through the entire healthcare chain. And we couldn't be more excited about it because we are, you know, committed to lowering drug pricing. Now, while price transparency is certainly welcomed by consumers, some have noticed the plan's stark similarity to Mark Cuban's cost plus drugs model. For more on all this, let's bring in the editor of Herb Greenberg on the Street on Substack. Herb himself is also a CNBC com uh, contributor. Herb, always great to see you. Thanks for joining Last Call tonight. Tell me what's different about this plan than what we've seen before. I mean, I think, yeah, consumers look at these things and they see just this alphabet soup of plans over the years. None of them have seen to make a difference in bending the cost curve in drugs. What is changing tonight? Well, what we think is changing is their claim of transparency. And what we don't know, Eamon, is how transparent it really is. You know, Mark Cuban will tell you that his company, uh, which I use, by the way, for I think now about 60% of my meds just because <laughs> it's the cheapest I could find, uh, he says they've got a 15%, he's got a 15% markup over the cost of the drugs. Um, what CBS is telling you is, there will be a cost plus a cost plus plus. So there'll be a cost for a certain, you know, for the for the markup, and then there's going to be a cost for services. What they're not telling you is what that's going to be when they roll this out. So what I think you're going to find, I I don't know for sure. I still bet you Mark Cuban undercuts them in the way he's doing it. I don't know quite how he's doing it, but I bet you he undercuts them. And I'll tell you why. Because right now, even if you look, and I've done the cost, I love to shop. So I've been shopping around and I go to Amazon and I take my meds and I go to, you know, uh, wherever I can go. And I still find that on the generics, and we're only talking generics with cost plus, prices still tend to be so much lower 
than I can get anywhere else, even in some of my Medicare drug plans. So I think that's going to be the challenge. But what they're trying to do is at least get ahead of it. It's like they got the memo. That's what I wrote today. They got the memo. And now, though, the real proof will be in the pricing. So whose ox is getting gored here, right? Obviously, CVS wants to try not to gore the consumers. It wants to try not to gore itself. Uh, presumably, you're talking about the drug companies being on the hook, eating the difference here in the cost. But well, you wonder if the drug companies, you know, do they have the power to say no to CVS? You know, the customer doesn't well, often get to tell the, the supplier what they're going to pay for the product. We don't know. And I would argue, there's remember, there's a middleman here. And that middleman, which I've been railing about for a very long time, is the yes, pharmacy yeah. benefit manager. Those PBMs, as they're known, are the people who really control what's going on with how much you pay for your drug and whether your drug is in the so-called formulary, meaning, you know, is it uh, is it approved by, uh, is it, are, when your doctor says you should take XYZ, yeah. is it gonna be more expensive? So anyway, the PBM may actually be the one to watch. I think that's the part of the industry where there's gonna be a level of disruption. But again, we don't know. They're saying they're transparent. That's controlling the message. You want to right. control the message, but now you've it's, got to It's really easier to say transparent than to be transparent, right, first of all. Absolutely. And secondly, Herb, we just had up on the screen, I don't know if you can see it, we just had up on the screen a list of some of the drugs that are now facing Medicare negotiation, right? The Biden administration says one of their big wins is being able to put the government in the position to negotiate yeah. prices around some of these big drugs. Not all of them, Those but are. they're going to start with an initial tranche. You can see on your screen here the drugs now that are going to be subject to that negotiation, presumably the massive buying power the federal government will be able to negotiate those things down. That was blocked by law before. What impact is that having now, or do you think it will have, or is that sort of, you know, overblown, do you think? Well, I don't know that it's overblown, because anytime you start having a big negotiations and prices start coming down, that's a good thing. And again, I'm looking at it as a Medicare, you know, I'm on Medicare. So I look at that and they say, hey, that's yeah. fantastic. Uh, and I, by the way, when I did my cost comparisons this year, I saw a stark difference in pricing, in fact, more aggressive pricing uh, by the uh, drug supplement plans uh, that I was looking at. So I would suspect that's actually going to have a positive benefit. And that, by the way, is beyond generics because we're talking about brand name drugs there. Herb, thanks so much for being here. I'm rooting for you and all your drug shopping. I hope you get the good prices. Uh, thanks so much thanks for your lot, time. Meantime tonight. Bitcoin is booming, surging above 44,000 to its highest level since April of 22. But some investors are still wary. CNBC's Kate Rooney joins us with the details. Hey there, Kate. Hey, Eamon. So despite its price recovery, most crypto investors really haven't regained that same enthusiasm. Trading activity is still relatively muted. This recent rally has been welcome news for a lot of people who are underwater on their Bitcoin holdings as the market's melted down last year. The cryptocurrency first crashed after the fall of the now bankrupt exchange, FTX. It started the year around 16,000. It had been stuck below 30,000 for most of 2023. And then December in the last week or so was really when that spike started. Analysts are pointing to a wipeout and leveraged short positions and then a lot of hope around a Bitcoin ETF approval. This recent jump, though, has brought most investors back into profitable territory. That's after being in the red for most of this year. That's according to data from Glassnode. They say what they call the super majority of Bitcoin supply is now held at a profit. And historically, Eamon, when that has been the case, investors tend to feel a little bit better about buying more. That wider investor participation has been a key ingredient of these sustained bull markets. But average investors right now, they're not totally convinced that they should be doubling down. Needham, for example, in a note to clients pointing out 
that retail crypto engagement is considerably lower than in prior years and despite the recent price gains has been fairly muted, adding that cycles tend to range from retail disinterest to euphoria. Today, they say it's closer to disinterest right now. They also point to fewer searches on Google for Bitcoin. Then they say there are some pockets of recovery. If you look at crypto trading volume on Robinhood last month, that was up roughly 75% versus October levels. It's according to a company filing equity and options. Meanwhile, we're pretty much flat. Those were zero growth uh, in terms of what they saw in the past month. Mizuho, though, estimates that Coinbase saw a 59% increase. And then while that is a significant jump aim in month over month, crypto volumes are still only about a quarter of where they were early last year. So we'll see if this rally continues and if crypto volumes recover here. Back to you, Amy. Yeah, Kate, you talk about that euphoria, right, that we saw in the run-up sort of post-pandemic, in the pandemic of crypto prices, then the come down that we saw last year, and now this bull rally that we've seen. I wonder if we look ahead to 24, if there's anything on the horizon that will give investors that confidence to return to that flat-out euphoria that we saw early on, or if those days are over and we're going to see more sort of tepid uh, bull markets, you know, sort of steady, you know, increases, but not that skyrocketing stuff that we saw a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, one of the things, Eamon, would be lower interest rates. If the Fed does go ahead yep. and start cutting rates, that should add to the risk appetite. Bitcoin is really seen as the riskiest of the risky tech investments, really. That's how it's yep. historically traded. So if there's more risk appetite, Fed lowers rates, that could really be a boost to Bitcoin while you have these other idiosyncratic sort of crypto specific things. The Fed really is what drives a lot of the markets and drives the crypto markets for the most part. So risk on interest rates down. That's a fascinating uh, trade. Definitely there. Uh, Kate, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. We'll see where all this lands. Uh, meanwhile, coming up, it is the Cybertruck review. Even Elon Musk is talking about the guy who put it to the test. It's going to be here next. Don't go to That's Haggerty's Jason Camisa racing the Tesla Cybertruck against a Hummer EV pickup. As you can see, not even close to a photo finish there. Camisa posted his review of the Cybertruck on YouTube just a few days ago. The video has already been viewed more than 3.8 million times. Even Elon Musk posted part of Camisa's video on X, used to be Twitter, now it's X. So does the Cybertruck live up to the hype? Let's ask Jason Camisa, automotive journalist at Haggerty. Uh, Jason, thank you for being here. You look like you had fun there. That looked like a fun drive. There are some days at work that are much quicker and more fun than others, and that was definitely <laughs> one of the fun ones. All right, so give me the thumbnail here. I mean, so much expectation and anticipation about this product because we've just really never seen any as big a gamble as this in the automotive space, you know, maybe ever, and certainly not in the trucking space. What do you think? I mean, the, the the long and short of it is that the the Cybertruck made its debut on a stage and captivated the entire world because of how it looked. And Tesla could have just made a truck that looked like that. But what they did was reinvent basically how the automobile is constructed, how it's networked, how it's steered, and all these. They made all of these changes they didn't have to make that really advanced the art of the automobile. And that was the shock to me because we don't. 
all, of course, seen it and we decided what, whether we liked it or not based on whether what it looked like. And the yeah. great irony here is even with a skin like that, it's actually what's underneath that's the most impressive. It, I mean, it better work because Elon Musk has got a lot invested in this. I mean, the, the, the bottom line question with this product is, you know, it's weird looking, right? It's an unusual looking vehicle. And the question is, you know, you, you talk about all the innovation that's built into it. But is there a market for that? I mean, pickup truck buyers tend to be, you know, relatively conservative, relatively traditional. They go with their existing brands that they had, their dad had, their granddad had. Uh, now this thing comes along. Are buyers going to line up for it in the traditional pickup truck market, or is, is Tesla in a position now where it has to go for an entirely new market that really doesn't exist yet? I, this is the crazy thing. This is why it captivated all of us, because we didn't think, I, I certainly didn't think, and I don't know, think anyone else in the industry thought a million people would plunk down a deposit on that after that, after it debuted four years ago. Um, so this is the, the space worth watching, because what Tesla has pulled off is a technical innovation. Um, well, technical innovation after technical innovation. They've done a fantastic job at engineering a truck. What remains to be seen is whether that new vision of what a pickup truck looks like and acts like and behaves like uh, that Tesla had and Elon had is shared by the, the world. And we don't know. I, no one knows. I yet. saw a video of the Cybertruck racing a Porsche while towing a Porsche and winning the race. You kind of wonder if they hire, you know, who they hired to drive the Porsche in that one. But uh, nonetheless, it's an impressive product. My question to you, though, is it bulletproof? There's so much been made about whether it's bulletproof yeah. or not. Did you shoot at this thing? We didn't. We did. We got permission to do so, but it was an, there was an, oh, funny enough, ironically, an insurance pr uh, problem with that. Even though I work for an insurance company, <laughs> I can um, apparently you shouldn't be shooting uh, pickup trucks at racetracks. But we did bash it as hard as we could repeatedly with a sledgehammer, um, and we saw the truck that had been shot at and inspected it. It's, the, let's be clear about this: the metal is bulletproof. The glass directly above it is not. So there Seems is like you a certain both, limitation right? to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you're you concerned about bullets flying, you might want the window as well as the body to be bulletproof. But you know, maybe we're maybe we're nitpicking here. Jason Kamisa, thank you so much for your analysis. You. Really appreciate it. Sticking with energy, let's turn to the United Nations COP28 climate summit in Dubai and a landmark agreement on methane reductions. It comes amid ongoing controversy over the COP's location and leadership in the UAE. CNBC's senior climate correspondent, Diana Olick, is on the ground with the latest. The agreement to drastically reduce methane emissions by the end of this decade includes not just coal and oil, but natural gas. The CEO of the Williams Companies, a U.S. nat gas processing and transportation firm, said he's not worried about the impact to his business. He's actually here at COP to try to expand it internationally. Natural gas is one of the few things that is more economic and therefore it's one of the few things that we can deploy in scale without government subsidy to reduce emissions dramatically around the world. There has been plenty of controversy around this COP being held in a major oil producing nation, not to mention that the head of the COP is the CEO of Adnoc, the UAE's state-owned oil company. But some argue that is as it should be. To say that we're not gonna get the energy industry as part of this process and this transition and we're going to defund the energy industry is going to throw billions of people out of, into poverty and there will be chaos in the world. So you got to have both sides working in tandem to the same common goal, which is how do we make this transition happen? And the methane agreement is just the beginning. Really one of the biggest items on the agenda here is the language in the final COP agreement. Will it say phase down or phase out the use of fossil fuels? 
Reports are that in the first draft, at least, it says phase out. Back to you. Diana, thanks. Still ahead, a Capitol Hill grilling. Top university presidents face lawmakers over anti-Semitism and protests on campus. Can they still squelch the uproar? Stay with us for that. Welcome back to Last Call. It was a tense day on Capitol Hill as lawmakers grilled the presidents of three top universities over incidents of anti-Semitism on campus. Today, the heads of Harvard, Penn, and MIT testified before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. They told lawmakers they won't tolerate anti-Semitism on campuses as they face protests over the the Israel-Hamas war. In one heated exchange, New York Representative Elise Stefanik, who went to Harvard herself, pressed the school's president on how the university is taking action against students who call for intifada. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. Now the hearing comes as some prominent Harvard alumni are pulling back their support from the school. Some are showing their dissatisfaction by donating just $1 to the university. So for more on all this, let's bring in Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Help us understand this debate, right? Because I'm old enough to remember the old ACLU point, which was, you know, all speech has to be protected everywhere in the United States. That's the First Amendment. So even, you know, hateful Nazis should be allowed to walk up and down the street saying hateful Nazi things. And the ACLU, the, you know, the liberal organization would fight to protect that. Is that picture, is that view of what freedom of speech is changing in your view? Well, look, a few things, Eamon. So first of all, if you think about these university presidents, I would grade them all an F on their performance today because they failed to show the basic moral courage that we expect from a third grader. Now, what do I mean by that? Freedom of speech is something we deeply believe in at ADL. We were founded to fight in part for the First Amendment. But freedom of speech, Eamon, isn't a freedom to slander people. And the freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. That's not protected speech. And when people walk through the campus wearing masks, calling for genocide against their Jewish classmates, at a minimum, that should violate every sensible code of conduct known to man. And even more so, for these universities have an obligation to protect our children, they need to finally, Eamon, start doing their job. We saw none of that kind of leadership today on the Hill. So what do you want to see? What's the what's the best outcome here in your view? Well, number one, the, these universities should kick the groups off campus, expel the students who would threaten to kill their classmates. Groups like <clears throat> Students for Justice in Palestine that, again, call for intifada, call for violence against their classmates. Number one, get rid of them. And number two, I'm not going to wait for these presidents to find their moral responsibility Eamon, we're going to look at the fiduciary responsibility of the trustees. So ADL has launched an effort to bring Title VI cases against these institutions 
for failing to protect their students. And look, that could jeopardize hundreds of millions of dollars of federal funding. So again, the president, they may dither and equivocate, but the members of the audit committee, they know they have to mitigate risk. That's why we're going after them. We'll let them know that their federal funding could be in jeopardy if they don't get so, on the ball. So, so let me put you in the, in the dean's seat or the president's seat at one of these universities. If you are the president of university tonight and there's going to be a pro-Palestinian protest at the university tomorrow, what, in your view, is the line which those protesters cannot cross? Here's the line they cannot cross. When you say from the river to the sea, again, that is, why a is call that? because that is a call to genocide from the river to the sea. Eamon in 2023 is like saying Germany for Germans in 1933. OK, it is a call to say that. And again, this is what Hamas says in their own words, that their goal is to murder Jews. We saw that on October 7th. We've seen that through their history of committing terror acts. So when students say from the river to the sea, they just say no. Just like you can't say you want to kill all the LGBTQ kids, just like you should never be able to say, I want to do something harmful to other minorities. You shouldn't say it against your Jewish classmates. By the way, Eamon, keep in mind that we've seen a record rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. We've seen a 300% increase in the last you know, 50 days since the massacre. So I'm not saying this is an issue in the abstract, Eamon. I'm saying right here, right now, Jewish people are facing harassment, vandalism, and violence, and these universities should be free from that behavior. Yeah, it's an absolutely tough time, a very difficult issue. I appreciate you uh, being here tonight to walk us through it. Thanks so much uh, for your Thank insights you. this evening. And coming Thank up, you. what's the most expensive home in all of Tennessee? What's it going to get you? Well, think Italian cashmere walls or Robert Frank. It's going to take us on an unforgettable visit. That is coming up next. Welcome back. Let's talk real estate, specifically mega mansions. CNBC wealth editor Robert Frank has an exclusive look at the most expensive piece of real estate for sale right now in the entire state of Tennessee. It's part of a special premiering tomorrow night right here on CNBC called Cities of Success, spotlighting Nashville and its remarkable economic evolution. Take a look. About 30 miles southwest of Nashville is the village of Leaper's Fork, one of the city's most affluent suburbs, which celebrities like Justin Timberlake and Nicole Kidman have called home. And behind these gates is a winding driveway that leads to the peak of Tennessee real estate. It's called Twin Rivers Farm, and it's the most expensive home to ever hit the market in the entire state. Price tag, $65 million more than double the state's previous record of $28 million set back in 2010. It's one of the most significant real estate holdings in the Southeast. Broker Dan McEwen was hired to sell the mega home, which sits on 383 acres. All this land is part of the reason it's got such a giant price tag. Over the last 20 years, the real estate market here has changed drastically. It's been mostly because of out-of-state buyers, out-of-state families that have settled here in Middle Tennessee. According to McEwen, a wave of migration from major cities in New York, Illinois, Florida, and California are pushing luxury real estate values to new heights. Which brings us back to the apex of that trend, the mansion of Larry Keel and his wife, Layan. 
Mr. Keel is the retired co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, one of the world's largest asset management firms. He's from Tennessee, and I think the quality of life here uh, called to Larry and ultimately brought him home. The main house is 10,000 square feet. Just looking around, he kind of combined the ultimate in luxury with materials and the modern look with a Tennessee farm feel. Yes. Even where we're standing is, is almost like a barn. The beams, the big windows. I mean, everywhere you look, you see grass and trees and hills. The home includes one of the most advanced pool houses in the state of Tennessee. They wanted a place to be able to come and use 12 months out of the year. They also wanted a putting green, a giant chessboard, professional tennis court, and miles and miles of trails, one of which leads to the estate's private lake. Did they build a property here because of this lake? Actually, they built this lake. When you look at Nashville's growth, it's just been one of the top, if not the top communities over the past 10 years in terms of real estate growth, price growth, population growth. What's driving it? Well, I think the state of Tennessee is very attractive. I mean, there's no state income tax. It's a very business-friendly state. It's also the cost of living here isn't near what it is in, a, in an L.A. or a New York. And so those are some of the factors that have really driven that. Price for this house could not have existed 10 years ago or 20 years ago. How is this a sign of where Nashville is right now? I think it's because of the out-of-state buyers. They've been able to sell their properties for a lot more than what's normal here, and they've made these types of capital improvements to our state. So why are the Keels selling? Well, their broker says the couple wants to downsize, and they want to live even closer to Nashville. You can catch CNBC's special Cities of Success Nashville tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss that one. And by the way, my wife Maureen and I were in Nashville this past weekend. We went to the Ryman Auditorium. We saw a band called the Hogslop String Band. Absolutely great show. Go catch them if you get to town. Meantime, do you know what happened 39 years ago today? An iconic action comedy hit the silver screen. Man, you, to get back. you changed, man. I'm, I'm telling speak. you to get back. If you don't get back, I'm going to blow your brains out. Please, move and I'll kill you. Who can forget that scene from Beverly Hills Cop? The blockbuster hit was one of the highest grossing movies of 1984. Beverly Hills Cop also made Eddie Murphy a Hollywood superstar. In fact, the movies he starred in banked more than $6.5 billion at the global box office. And Murphy's next project could add to that total. Here are images of him on the set of Beverly Hills Cop 4. It's set to be released next year on Netflix. So who's your favorite Axel, by the way? Axel Foley, Axel Rose? Very tough call there. That's your last call for tonight. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.